The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today, the next passage we come to is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And God's word says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Glad that one wasn't too much for you to handle. It was a long one. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, Um, and uh, we pray what Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth, Lord. That is our prayer this morning. So please use your word by your spirit to sanctify your people, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of our lives is spent doing work, right? Uh, In all likelihood, most of us spend more time working than we do on anything else, especially if you take into account the work that's done that doesn't involve a paycheck. Yet even if we're just talking about the kind of work that we would call our jobs and that we get paid to do, we spend an incredible portion of our lives working, usually at least five out of every seven days. Yet from what I've observed, most people and even most Christians are in sort of a fog about the meaning and significance of our work. So many of us spend so much time working and yet have almost no idea about how our work could possibly be a spiritually meaningful thing. Like, how could working at a car dealership or an insurance agency or a factory or a financial institution or a fast food restaurant be spiritually significant? And so, uh, for many, if not most people, they go to work primarily so that they can earn a paycheck. You know, maybe you've seen the popular bumper sticker that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. So that encapsulates the mentality that most people have about their jobs. And, of course, paying our bills is no small matter, and I certainly don't want to minimize that. But I would ask, is receiving a paycheck really the foundational reason why we work? 
You know, many people seem to operate on that assumption. So they put in their hours at work so that they can pay their bills, but what they're really looking forward to is the weekend. You know, they, they do what they've got to do Monday through Friday, but the weekend, you know, that's where it's at. Yet when you think about it, that's kind of a sad way to live. I mean, are five out of seven days in our lives really just these throwaway days that are only useful because they help us enjoy the other two days? I mean, that's kind of depressing, isn't it? And yet, that's the way many Christians go through their lives, viewing work as, at best, a spiritually meaningless activity, and at worst, a necessary evil. Either way, it's something that we unfortunately have to do if we want to have the money to live an otherwise enjoyable life. Now, of course, according to this mindset, uh, some people might be called to these spiritual careers, right? Like being a pastor or being a cross-cultural missionary. But for everyone else, they just kind of have to suck it up and get through the work week. I mean, that is the mentality that it seems a lot of Christians have. But what if I told you that that's not at all what the Bible teaches about work? That according to Scripture, work is actually something that's filled with spiritual significance. Well, I believe that's the case, and that the biblical view of work is indeed radically different than the way many Christians approach their work. And like I said, this includes not only the kind of work that we get paid for, but also the work that doesn't involve financial compensation. So this applies just as much to the stay-at-home mom as it does to those who work outside the home. And the biblical view of work begins, as so many things do, in the first two chapters of Genesis, and specifically, especially in our main passage of Genesis 2, 1 through 3. We'll be going in different places around Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is the, the main text. These verses show us that God engages in work and calls us to engage in work as well. That's the main idea we're going to be looking at from this passage. God engages in work and calls us to engage in work as well. Now, next time, we'll look at the opposite side of the coin and consider what these three verses have to say to us about rest. That's another very important concept. But before we talk about rest, there's a whole lot for us to talk about this morning regarding work. And guys, my hope is that by the end of this message, that you'll be able to walk into work tomorrow morning or start your work wherever you do it with an entirely different mentality. I hope each one of us can engage in our work with a distinct sense of purpose and experience wonderful fulfillment in our work, even as we um, uh, grow in our appreciation of its spiritual significance. Now, Genesis 2 uh, records the immediate aftermath of the six days of creation recorded in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 was a description of how God created everything in this universe from the smallest particle to the largest galaxy. That was the first work week. The first work week in the history of the world 
was God's work week in Genesis 1. We then read in verses 1 and 2 of our main passage, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So as you can see here, the word work occurs two times and emphasizes that God did indeed engage in work. He didn't consider work to be somehow beneath his dignity, but engaged in it and even took delight in it. If you remember back to Genesis 1, we find it stated six times that God created such and such and what? Saw that it was good. We saw that last week. And then after creating everything, Genesis 1.31 says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God took a moment to survey the work he had done, and he thought to himself, man, that is a good-looking universe. Maybe you've done that sometimes with your work, right? Like maybe you've done some things to, to make your lawn look better, let's say, and you've seen those interventions start to take effect, and, and you've just taken a moment and thought to yourself, oh, man, that's a good-looking lawn. Now, I'll admit, I, I do this sometimes with the church sign that you see up there. Uh, I actually had a pretty big role in designing that sign and, and determining what it would look like. And, and so sometimes I'll just kind of turn into the church driveway and just kind of let my car stop there a little bit and look at my window and think to myself, man, that is a, that's a good-looking sign, Right? <laughs> So that is what God does as well as he looks over his creation. He takes pleasure and delight in his work. And not only did God engage in work in order to create this universe, he's actually been working ever since then to sustain and direct this universe as well. As Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 5, 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. The NIV translates that, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. In addition, as we can see right in that verse, uh, the verse reminds us not only of the work of God the Father, but also of Jesus as well. And of course, specifically, the work he's referring to in this verse is the miracle he had just performed of enabling a paralyzed man to walk. However, lest we think that's the only kind of work Jesus did, work that was spiritual in nature, let's not forget that Jesus lived most of his life as a carpenter. He labored as a carpenter probably for around 20 years before he began his three-year stint in full-time vocational ministry. So that means he spent over six times as many years working as a carpenter as he did engaging in public preaching and teaching. For the majority of his days on this earth, guys, Jesus came home in the evening with sawdust on his hands, mortar on his clothes, and the distinct aroma of good old-fashioned sweat. Right? What a great confirmation 
of the intrinsic dignity of work. And here's the thing. Not only does God engage in work, but he also calls us to engage in work as well. Back in Genesis 2.15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. There's a, there's a purpose statement, right? To work it and keep it. That's huge. Right after God engaged in his work of creating this world, he placed Adam in the Garden of Eden so that Adam also could work. And keep in mind that all of this took place before the fall that's recorded in Genesis 3, before humanity rebelled against God and fell into sin. So work wasn't a result of the fall, but was very much something that preceded the fall. Right in the middle of the perfect paradise of the Garden of Eden, when everything was exactly the way God intended it to be, there was work. Work is a good gift from our good creator. In fact, not only was Adam given the responsibility of working the Garden of Eden, we also see back in the previous chapter that his sphere of responsibility actually encompassed the whole earth. We read in Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, the first humans, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's intention for Adam and Eve was to produce offspring and teach their offspring to work so that they could one day subdue the whole earth. And that involves doing essentially what God did in creation, taking the chaos and turning it into order. And that includes every kind of advancement that we could name, from advancements related to technology and healthcare to I mean, just advancements related to human civilization in general. And those advancements, of course, wouldn't happen by magic, but through very deliberate and focused work. So what you have here in Genesis 1 is God's command for us to work toward what we might call human flourishing. You might want to add that phrase to your vocabulary. Human flourishing. And that directive is still in effect to this day, as we can see throughout the rest of the Bible. For example, the, even the fourth of the Tenth Commandments uh, that God gave to Moses makes it very clear that God expected his people to work. Even though we typically think of the fourth commandment as a command to rest, even this command to rest actually includes a command to work. God states in Exodus 20, 8 through 10, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So even as God commanded his people to rest on the seventh day, he also clearly commands them to work 
The other six days. Six days you shall labor. Now, one important thing we need to address before going any further is that even though work is an intrinsically good thing, it has indeed been corrupted to a certain degree by the fall. Again, the fall uh, refers to the rebellion of humanity against God and had results that really echoed throughout the entire created order. All of creation, including work, fell into a state of brokenness and dysfunction. In fact, work is specifically included in the curse that God pronounced against humanity. As we read in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So because of the fall, work became hard. It now involves pain and sweat. And also, it says, contains thorns and thistles. Now, obviously, these are all references to agricultural labor, but it's not that hard to make the connection to the types of work that are more common in our modern society. Work now involves stress and overtime and unreasonable bosses and dysfunctional relationships and pointless meetings and backstabbing and coworkers who lack integrity and supply chain shortages and just a wide array of frustrating circumstances in general. These are all examples of thorns and thistles. So it's important that we see work both as intrinsically good and part of God's original creation as well as something that's been cursed by the fall, right? We need to keep both of those realities in mind because if we only see the original goodness of work, then we might become frustrated or even disillusioned when we experience work as the difficult thing that it often is. Yet if we only focus on the fact that work is cursed now, we might have a hard time engaging in our work to the glory of God. And by the way, this should also lead us to be very careful about allowing our minds to be filled with um, idealistic dreams of the perfect job. Friends, the perfect job doesn't exist. (laughs) So you might be frustrated in your current job and, and have a growing lack of contentment there, but you might want to think twice about just perpetually jumping from job to job simply because the grass always seems to be greener on the other side. Any job you do is going to have at least some difficulties and frustrations. It'll never be all that you want it to be. Yet, I'd like to emphasize that even after the curse of Genesis 3, work is still a good gift from our good creator. Yes, it's been cursed, but it's still 
inherently good. So in light of that, and to uh, develop that a bit, let me encourage you to start approaching your work in four specific ways. Just consider this a four-pronged application. First, approach your work as worship to God. Approach your work as worship to God. If what we've said about work so far is true, uh, that it really is a good gift from our good creator, and that our creator expects us to work, well then, we should engage in work, the work he's called us to, as worship to him. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to workers in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Think about that last sentence. You are serving the Lord Christ. Ultimately, when we work, we're not just serving our human boss. We're actually serving Jesus. Our work is worship to him. Now, keep in mind that this mentality goes beyond simply engaging in our work in a way uh, that Jesus finds pleasing, like maybe by exhibiting integrity and things like that. I mean, that's definitely a good place to begin, but what we're talking about is actually more than that. What we're talking about involves engaging in the work itself as worship to Jesus. As one pastor named Bob Thune writes, it's not enough that we try to honor God in how we do our work or that we try to be Christ-like people at work, or that we support God's kingdom with the money we make from work. The glory of God must inform and transform our view of work itself. And this is also confirmed in 1 Corinthians 10.31, where Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Includes, of course, our work. Another author named uh, Tom Nelson describes this mentality as viewing our work not only as something that has instrumental value, but also something that has intrinsic value. In other words, work is valuable not only because of its economic benefits or uh, the various other things that result from our work, but rather our work itself is valuable and significant, and is a way for us to worship God. Also, number two, approach your work not only as worship to God, but also growing out of that as a way to image God. Approach your work as a way to image God. Thinking back again to Genesis one twenty eight, notice that God's instruction for us to fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion over the earth comes right after two verses that emphasize how God created us in his image. That's no accident. The implication is that work is a foundational way in which we image God. We've already seen how God's a worker, both in creating and sustaining this universe, and so a key way in which we image him and reflect his glory is by also being workers ourselves. This means 
that when you think about it, not working is actually in some ways dehumanizing. When we don't work, any kind of work, that erodes an aspect of our dignity as human beings. Um, you know, every once in a while, uh, like maybe every couple years or so, uh, I will um, binge watch a, a certain just different shows on the internet, right? It doesn't happen very often. Uh, you know, with four kids, I don't get that kind of time very often, but uh, I think one time it did happen, probably about a couple years ago, and I think I watched this one show for like seven hours. I just sat there seven hours and watched this show, and it was a good show, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, but at the end of it, I just felt like terrible, you know? Like, I felt empty and unfulfilled and just blah. Now, part of that might be the junk food I was eating for the seven hours, but I think there was another part of that. The reason for me feeling that way is that my, an aspect of my human dignity had been partially eroded by my utter laziness. So a key part of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God is that we work. And in fact, to get even more specific, there's some fascinating connections that we can make between the various vocations to which God calls people and the work that God himself does. Now, these connections, um, I didn't come up with them, but they were pointed out to me by an author named Robert Banks, and they just represent some specific ways in which we image God. So, for example, as we see in Genesis 1, God does creative work. And people also do creative work, as we see with carpenters, builders, metal workers, architects, urban planners, sculptors, actors, painters, musicians, poets, potters, novelists, fashion designers, and interior designers. That's creative work. In addition, God also does sustaining work in which he sustains this universe and makes sure that things happen in an orderly manner. Likewise, people also do sustaining work, as we see with public utility workers, repairmen, farmers, transportation workers, IT specialists, bankers, mechanics, engineers, building inspectors, plumbers, welders, and custodians. Moreover, God does justice work, maintaining justice in this universe. Likewise, people also engage in work related to maintaining justice, such as judges, lawyers, paralegals, public policymakers, prison guards, human resource personnel, and police officers. God also does work related to compassion, as he comforts, heals, guides, and shepherds. Likewise, people also engage in compassion work, as we see with doctors, nurses, paramedics, therapists, social workers, pharmacists, counselors, and nonprofit staff and volunteers. And lastly, we also see God engaging in revelatory work, as he enlightens people with the truth. And likewise, we find this among uh, pastors, scientists, educators, journalists, when they're at their best, scholars, and writers. So again, the point of all of these connections between the kind of work that God does and the kind of work that we do is that work is a key way in which we image God. 
even in these very specific ways. And then a third um, aspect or a way for us to approach our work is to approach it as a way of loving our neighbor. Approach your work as a way of loving your neighbor. Even though, in the way our modern society is structured, we might often be far removed from the people who benefit from our work, there's still a very real way in which our work helps and serves other people. Through our work, we contribute to the common good, and here's that phrase again, human flourishing. We're contributing to human flourishing. So a roofer serves people by keeping them from getting wet. A worker in an automobile factory serves people by helping them get better transportation. A pharmacy tech serves people by helping them get the medications they need. A sanitation worker serves people by taking away their garbage. In fact, uh, with the way our capitalistic society is structured, I think we have good reason to believe that the, the vast majority of legitimate jobs serve people in some way and contribute to the common good. I mean, just about all of it. I'd even say that if you determine, after serious consideration, that your job like, doesn't serve other people and, and contribute to the common good, that you really might consider trying to find another job. I mean, that's how important this is, of doing our work to love and serve other people. And finally, um, a fourth way to approach our work is as a prelude to the new creation. Approach your work as a prelude to the new creation. Now, contrary to popular belief, the new creation, often simply referred to as heaven, isn't going to be this place of you know, disembodied spirits just sitting around in the clouds and playing harps all day. That's not the biblical picture. Instead, the biblical picture of the new creation is of a place that includes, you guessed it, work. It includes work. You know, speaking of the inhabitants of this new creation, Isaiah 65, 21 and 22 tells us, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen, as my chosen people, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Think about the implications of this. It's, it's truly staggering. So this means a lot of things. But one thing is that the work we do on this earth prior to the new creation, actually has eternal value. Tom Nelson writes, what we do here is not a waste. The skills and abilities you are developing now in your workplace will not be wasted. They will be utilized and further developed in the future work God has for you to do in the new heavens and new earth. Your time here in our Father's fallen world is a preparation for an eternity of activity and creativity in the new heavens and new earth. Your work matters, not only now, but also for the future. 
So you might think of it, I guess, as like rollover. Remember back in ancient times when like cell phone plans had these things they called rollover minutes, you know, like instead of having unlimited talking and texting, uh, as most plans do now, they would have a certain number of allotted minutes. But if you didn't use all of your allotted minutes for the month, they would have this nice feature often called rollover minutes. They would roll over to the next month. And similarly, there's rollover between the work we do here on earth and the way we experience the new creation. So to summarize how we should approach our work, we should approach it as worship to God, as a way for us to image God, as a way of loving our neighbor and contributing to to human flourishing, and finally, as a prelude to the new creation. So, guys, this is how you can experience incredible happiness and fulfillment in your work. You know, Monday through Friday don't have to be these throwaway dates as you look forward to the weekend. No, they can be incredibly meaningful days that are filled with spiritual significance. And by the way, one very concrete way in, the, in which these mentality shifts make a difference or should make a difference in our day-to-day lives is that they should motivate us to be hard workers. Like, just work hard. Go to work tomorrow and do your absolute best. <laughs> be the best employee the best manager, the best contractor that you can be. Make it your goal to be known as one of the most competent and reliable and productive and honest people in your field. And do this not merely to get a promotion or a raise, but to glorify God. As Jerry Falwell liked to say, if it's Christian, it ought to be better. If it's Christian, it ought to be better. So try to live up to that title of being a Christian worker. In order to truly glorify God in our work, uh, there's one final thing we need to talk about, which happens to be the most foundational of all. In order to work for God's glory, we have to be changed from within. You see, humanity's rebellion against God resulted not only in a curse on work, but also in our own hearts, um, getting into a state of dysfunction. And this dysfunction is called sin. So because of the fall, we are sinners by our very nature. So that means in our natural condition, we don't have the capacity to glorify God in our work. Instead, all of our work will ultimately revolve around human glory rather than God's glory. That's the only kind of work we're capable of doing in and of ourselves. So asking someone to glorify God in their work, apart from the supernatural change of heart that God gives to us, is kind of like asking a driver to drive forward in a car that's stuck in reverse. No matter how hard that driver pushes the gas pedal, that car car isn't going forward, only backward. 
And so that's why we need to be changed from within. And we also need to be rescued from the consequence of our rebellion, which is the judgment of God being poured out on us. And yet, while we were in that condition, Jesus came to rescue us. Right? That's why he entered this world. He came on a rescue mission to redeem us from the results of the fall and to save us from the judgment that our sins deserve. And Jesus did that by taking that judgment on himself and enduring it in our place on the cross. Jesus suffered the wrath of God the Father so that we wouldn't have to. And then three days later, he resurrected from the dead to demonstrate that everything he said was true and to make that same resurrection life available to us. However, the Bible says that in order to experience this rescue Jesus offers, we have to turn away from our sins in repentance and put our trust in Jesus alone to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And when we come to Jesus in that way, we experience the ultimate fulfillment of the purpose for which we were created, which is a relationship with our Creator. You see, before God calls us to a vocation, He calls us to Himself. The vocational call is secondary, but the call to God Himself is primary. You might say that before we're called to something, we're first called to someone. So as we think about the concept we've been exploring this morning of work, it's true that we're called to be workers. But make sure you're clear that all of the work we do isn't done for God's rescue in the sense of earning something, but rather from God's rescue in the sense of exhibiting our joy and gratitude for the rescue that we already have. So God rescues us not because of any merit on our part, but solely through our faith in Jesus. And then, subsequent to that, we live lives of worship to him, including being faithful in our vocational calling as a way of exhibiting our love and gratitude. 